0: And so when I got assigned to the bombing cases in Atlanta, Richard Jewell had at that time been cleared. And so that entire situation had been moved on from. And when I got there in November of 1997, we didn't have any suspects in those bombings. We didn't know who did it. And so I really got there at an interesting time. It was like a real who done it. Where do we go? We're 15 months after the Olympics. We're starting at ground zero here. Um, and so it was fascinating to get assigned to such a huge case right off the bat. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial. At-
1: when I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself, and it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Trauma. Hey, movers. Welcome back to another episode of Moving Past Trauma. I'm your host, Collier Landry, and what's going on? Oh, man. It has been a week. Let me tell you, lots of stories in the news, lots of things unfolding. Very, very interesting. But Mover Nation, I have a fantastic guest for y'all today. Her name is Jodine Weber. She is the host of the Caught in My Web podcast on Patreon and a regular contributor to reality life with Kate Casey. Uh, She is a podcaster, a writer, a 9-11 responder, retired FBI agent, former TV journalist, and most importantly, a mother to boy and girl twins. (laughs) We have a great conversation about ethical true crime, blurring the lines between being an FBI agent and a journalist, and she shares her thoughts on the media conjecture surrounding the Brian Koberger and the Idaho murders, Alex Murdaugh, and how her trauma has informed her now as a podcaster. Now, I want to say thank you first to all of my patrons on Patreon. Without your support, I wouldn't be able to do this program. And please remember, if you are interested, I do live meet and greets at the end of every month. We Monthly meet and greets, we get, to, we get to interact with one another on Zoom. It's really, really great. We get a lot of really cool conversations going. So if you'd like to join, please don't hesitate. If you sign up at the $10 a month or higher level for the year, you will get a free T-shirt. So don't forget. Also, speaking of merchandise, there is new merch in my merch store, including Survivor Squad merchandise, which, if you don't know, is my new podcast that I co-host with Tara Newell of Dirty John fame. Also, now I am live on my YouTube channel every Wednesday and Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. You guys can catch them live on my channel or watch the replays, or you can listen to them right here on the audio version of the podcast. Before I jump into my interview with Jodine, I wanna get to this week's listener question of the week. This question comes from Kathy and Kathy says, Dear Collier, I love your work. Well, thank you, Kathy. (laughs) I am curious, do you still communicate with your father? I know that you've said before that you haven't spoken to him since you made your film A Murder in Mansfield, but I'm curious if that has changed. Well, Kathy, I actually have corresponded with my father. I communicated with him last month because he turned 80, in prison. And last month was his birthday. So I reached out to him with the help of (laughs) ChatGPT and wrote him a letter. And he has written me a couple of letters back, which I have yet to open, but which I will be doing on this podcast in the next week. So check out those episodes. I don't know what he's going to say, but uh, it will be interesting, I'm sure. So anyways, that said, let's get into my conversation today with Jodine Weber.
0: Thank you for having me on, Collier. I have a background as a journalist and a background in law enforcement. My degree in college was broadcast journalism and I graduated in the late, well, quite a while ago. Let's just put it that way. We don't need to date ourselves, we're all good. (laughs) I don't need to age myself. Several decades ago, I graduated from college with a degree in journalism. And during my internship between my junior and senior year, I was working at a top 40 radio station in the news department and that summer Silence of the Lambs came out and I went and saw Silence of the Lambs and I'm like, okay, here I am studying to be an investigative journalist and being an FBI agent, watching Jodie Foster in that movie changed my life. I'm like, how do you do that? (laughs) So I did a feature story for the radio station. I was interning at about how do women get into the FBI And I tracked down a local FBI agent and he let me come in and I interviewed him for about an hour. And when we got done, he said, you interview people very well. We need women. You need to be able to talk to different types of people day in and day out. Anyone from a child all the way on up to the president of the United States. So why don't you go do your little TV career for a few years? And if you're still interested in the FBI, fill out an application. So that's exactly what I did. I got a job out of college at the local television station. It was an NBC affiliate. And I rose rapidly in the ranks there from weekend producer to reporter to eventually morning anchor. Oh, wow. Spent five years there. But after three years, I was bound and determined to join the FBI because I had covered several bank robberies, a high profile kidnapping, a serial bomber. And I just felt, I'm tired of six o'clock news coming around at six o'clock every night. And I don't know all the answers, but yet these people investigating, they do know what's going on. They know more than me. And that drove me crazy. So I applied to the FBI. It took two years with all the tests and background investigations and everything that they need to do for me to be accepted into the FBI Academy. But then finally in 1997, I was accepted. I went into training and graduated from the academy in November of that year.
1: Wow. And it was all based on this insatiable appetite to scratch that itch, that knowledge itch.
0: (laughs) Pretty much. I was the kid that had her head in a Nancy Drew book as fast as I could get my hands on them, those yellow spine Nancy Drew books. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw the Silence of the Lamb movie and I saw that, I'm like, well, how do you get to be an FBI agent? Because back at that time, they really didn't recruit as heavily as they do on college campuses now. And certainly weren't looking for the diversity at that time that they do now. And so it was really new to have An influx of so many female applicants at that time. And I didn't realize that my investigative journalism experience would be such an asset. The fact that I did have very significant interviewing skills, I was experienced at it. I knew how to make people comfortable. I knew how to actively listen and ask questions as people were telling me things. And so it just fit together like puzzle pieces and just. So something, when that FBI agent said to me, you interview people, it's that one thing people can say to you that can totally change the direction of your life. And so I owe him a great deal of gratitude.
1: And it's interesting because normally I I feel like a lot of people go the opposite route. They become, they go into the FBI, then they become an expert on network news or whatever they're called up, Brian Koberger case, this, that, and the other. So it, it almost feels in a lot of ways that you had a, I wouldn't say an unfair advantage for, but you did in a way or an earned advantage because you've learned to know, like just right on the streets, dealing with someone, you know, and you know that they're lying to you or they're not telling the full story. And you have this really great sort of spidey sense. It seems that you were able to hone <laughs> in doing that. And also just having such a passion for something I think is really, that's a good life let's just point that out. Like you as a woman Rose and look, I've worked in television media and, you know, as a cinematographer filmmaker for well over a decade now. And I, there has been a lot of advancements for women and obviously people of color and things of that nature, but it's really hard to make it as a woman in that business. And so for you to have almost in that brief amount of time, a meteoric success where they're not like just sticking you, you know, with a guy covering, Oh, there's a new kitty show at the mall At the to where you're an anchor behind a desk. And then to say, you know what, I'm not fulfilled. Cause you could have, who knows where that could have gone, but you weren't fulfilled inside. And I always feel that's one of the things that when I talk to people on this program is like, what really drives you to through your process. Right. And that's something I just want to point out. Like, that's not an easy walk away. That's because you're so yes. Divorced.
0: And no, yes and no. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I wanted to be more intellectually challenged. After a while, when you anchor the morning news or whatever news program, it's not that tough to read off the teleprompter. Certainly, if you're doing live interviews during your newscast, that's more challenging and exciting. I enjoyed being a field reporter, getting out. But once you're on the desk and you get good ratings, they want you on that desk. So you don't get out in the field as much. And quite frankly, I felt that I just had more to do with my life. I wanted to see the world more and experience different, live in different areas, meet new people, really see what I could do and what my skills could do to help better the world. And certainly I think that's really where I found my calling is that I felt that in law enforcement, I could really help people more so than I could in journalism even. And journalists and the media, they serve a purpose too. It's really just, truth be told, I didn't necessarily enjoy being on television. When you're a female, especially, you get a lot of male, and at that time it was male, we didn't have the internet at that time. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of it was, what shade of lipstick are you wearing? And I love your hair. And I wasn't on television for that purpose. And I found it really disconcerting. And so I didn't miss that part of the job. Good point. And quite now, frankly, right now, people are like, guest on Kate Casey's podcast, you have your own podcast, why aren't you on TV more? Because you could really, you could really be on quite frankly, all the time, if you wanted to be And I just, I'm not seeking name, face recognition. My point to be, if I'm going to be on a show, it's really to help educate people. And if I don't feel that I'm going to have the opportunity to really speak and educate people on things, then I don't necessarily need to be on TV. I think podcasts and YouTube are much better forums.
1: I would agree with that. It's so interesting that you said. Back then, when you were on camera, it was a lot of male scrutiny, as alluding to. And you've met Tara Newell, mm-hmm. who is my co-host of Survivor Squad, the other podcast I do. Mm-hmm. And she gets some of the nastiest stuff written to her. I do too. It was Mother's Day this weekend, and I have all the haters come out and say th- horrific things to me. I killed my mom, and I did this and that. I'm a uh. traitor on my father. I'm. The, it's wild, right? But whatever, I put myself out there. But some of the stuff that Tara gets is really, is just really hurtful, especially for her. But I, I was dumbfounded when I realized it was 99% coming from women. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my goodness. I'm like, look at all the advancements to a certain point, a lot of advancements, maybe up until 2022, but there was a lot of advan- mm-hmm. advancements for, for women in this country, and then just to see like like, why hate on someone else or bring them down like that? come on, and I would just and on. now it's
0: rampant with the ease of it behind a computer of course and people can stay anonymous and right and their phones, and it's just really on just the judgment of it I, I feel bad for any female Tara. Anyone who's in that position, because I really don't see what point that serves, these people who are so critical,
1: other than to just be cruel. Just to be cruel, that's what it serves. It's schadenfreude, or it's, uh, it's just, it just makes them feel better. And I have people point that out to me all the time, and I tell Tara this, like, it's just, they're just... Doing it and it but it's really it's not really upsetting because she had to take a life and people just assume that, that was like an easy thing to do. What? You well
0: know. and that she doesn't have ongoing trauma.
1: Well, trauma. Yeah from that right. exactly. Yeah, it's but let's get into your so you have all this journalistic experience, you have this insatiable itch that you just can't seem to scratch. You spend the two years of the process of getting in, you get in. You have a 22 year twenty-two year career. How does that play out? Did you get to travel the world? Do you have some great James Bond, Jane Bond stories? <laughs> 007, what, what, what's going on?
0: When I graduated from the FBI Academy, they sent me to Atlanta and it was in 1997. And I was assigned to the Southeast Bomb Task Force and they were investigating the Centennial yeah. Olympic Park bombing and yeah. then the subsequent bombings in Atlanta at a women's health service, and then also at a gay lesbian bar in Atlanta, there had been subsequent bombings. And then ultimately the Southeast Bomb Task Force also investigated a bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. And so when I got assigned to the bombing cases in Atlanta, Richard Jewell had at that time been cleared. And so that entire situation had been, I guess, moved on from. And when I got there in November of 1997, we didn't have any suspects in those bombings. We didn't know who did it. And so I really got there at an interesting time. It was like a real who done it. Where do we go? We're 15 months after the Olympics. We're starting at ground zero here. Um, and so it was fascinating to get assigned to such a huge case right off the bat. And Part of the reason they assigned me to that case was because of my media background. What they were doing was collecting video images and camera images from people all over the world who had been in Centennial Olympic Park, trying to piece together a photographic timeline to see if we could find images of the device, the bomb, placed under the park bench, which was near the NBC Sound Tower, which is where Richard Jewell had worked. And so part of my assignment was to track down people who had been in Centennial Olympic Park, find out if they had, at the time, photographs were taken with film. So do you yeah, have processed that. film? And do you have camcorder video from inside Centennial Olympic Park so that we can create a video timeline. And so that's what I was working on until January of 1998, when we had a subsequent bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, at a women's reproductive health center. And at that point, Eric Robert Rudolph became our suspect. And then once he became a suspect, then he became a fugitive. And I was assigned to the fugitive investigation, trying to track him down in the Nantahala Forest in North Carolina. So I spent a year up in North Carolina looking for him. And from there, his the fugitive case went on for five years. I ultimately, after a year in North Carolina, I got sent back so that I could have somewhat of a, a normal life and career in the FBI. And I was assigned to the terrorism squad, the Joint Terrorism Squad task force. And so I worked in domestic and international terrorism for a number of years. And then eventually Eric Robert Rudolph was arrested on 9-11. I was in Atlanta when the planes hit. I was immediately set, sent to the Pentagon to work the crime scene there for 16 days, processed that scene, and then continued to work terrorism in my subsequent offices of Norfolk, Virginia and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And then once I had children, it became very difficult to work. Terrorism, there's a lot of nights, a lot huh. of weekend surveillances, a lot of international travel. Yeah. You US, have I traveled the world? Yes, I have. Um, been all over the world. And uh, once I had my children, I needed banker's hours, to put it bluntly. Yeah. So I asked, hey, can I transfer to the White Collar Crime Squad? And work complex financial crimes. And so I did that for about 10 years after working terrorism for 10 years. So um, that's my story in the FBI, but I had a wide range of cases. No two cases were identical. And uh, it it was fascinating, quite fascinating.
1: So I am, (laughs) I'm not like a huge, I've said this on my program many times, I'm not like a huge true crime, like person into murder and things that, because it hits so close to home with what happened to me. Mm -hmm. But I am fascinated with scams and financial crimes. And I have argued a lot to people that I think that those are ultimately more destructive than taking someone's life because you're taking someone's life, livelihood, and they're still around to have to pick up the pieces of the devastation that you caused them and their families. And I often, and then of course we all know that financial situation often dictates violence or additional violence in the home Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. I have so many questions with, so obviously, so how long was that Atlanta bombing solved from when it happened? Was that like a 10 year span?
0: He was arrested. I want to say 2003, I believe he was arrested and then he ultimately pled and was sentenced to life in prison. Start to finish there, I want to say it was eight, nine years from the time of the first bombing until Eric Robert Rudolph was ultimately sentenced quite a bit. But there was a number of years there before he was apprehended that those victims, particularly there was a nurse who was just horribly injured in the Birmingham case. And then, of course, all the people in the park that were injured by the flying shrapnel, Those victims had to wait years for us to find him and years for justice. And it really is a testament to the faith victims can have in law enforcement and their belief in law enforcement and the prosecutors that someday justice will come. Because that's not easy. It it, it could be very frustrating, especially if law enforcement doesn't get the right person right away. Or there isn't
1: a suspect right away. I, uh, you touched upon a really interesting point there because, <clears throat> obviously, what we were discussing at the top of this was the navigation of power, social relationships, the rise of the internet, the things of that nature, and I. There was an article in Vanity Fair a few months ago about the Idaho Four case and mm-hmm. the sort of influx of internet sleuths that have all come out of the woodwork that all think they're smarter than law enforcement. And as a former law enforcement agent in, in, in the highest, I would argue the highest of law enforcement in this country, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you think about that when you see that?
0: Really, that was the catalyst for why I was a guest on Kate Casey's podcast and how I ultimately created my own Patreon podcast, because... When that Idaho 4 case happened in November, all these chat rooms sprung up and I joined them because one, I had great interest in this crime. At First, I thought it's going to be an ex-boyfriend or a jealous lover of one of the students, someone in their close orbit. But then as a few days went on, I'm like, typically, it's if they haven't made an arrest yet, this could be a stranger, a stranger perpetrator here. So I was very interested in it. And so I joined these chat rooms. And what I would see in these chat rooms is great speculations. And quite frankly, quite a bit of libel, people just throwing people under the bus, falsely accusing them. And I also suspected the possibility that the perpetrator or perpetrators could be in these chat rooms. So I was very interested in it. As it turned out, one of the chat rooms I was in was the chat room for Kate Casey's podcast, because she does cover quite a few documentaries, true crime documentaries on her podcast. And I'm a longtime listener of hers. So in being in her podcast chat room, Mm -hmm. I found there were a number of participants who had all these questions and didn't quite understand the criminal court process proceedings or different things about the case. And so I would hop on there. I'd say, in my experience as an FBI agent, and then lo and behold, after answering a few questions, some of these other participants in our chat room said, hey, Kate, you got to get this girl on. She'd be really good to have on the podcast to explain this case, explain what she's seeing, explain how this is, rampant about how people are being falsely accused and should we really trust law enforcement when they say these people are cleared. And so Kate had me on the podcast. And as it turned out, the very first day I was on her podcast, the probable cause affidavit had just been released. And oh, wow. so because of her timing, she's a mom of five and she is on a tight schedule. So she's like, look, I got to record it. I think we recorded it at like 2 p.m that day. And the probable cause affidavit came out at 1230. So I had an hour and a half to devour this multi-page document and really take in the information. And I'm 35 years since I've been on TV. I haven't done this in years. So I, I just tried my best and tried to break it down into layman's terms and explain it and answer her questions about it. And apparently the response was quite Overwhelmingly positive. And she had me back on the next week. And I found a really great sense in that, okay, I'm not being exploited. I'm able to explain this to people so they can understand, okay, here's why, here's the evidence they had to arrest him. Here's what we know from the roommates who are also victims, by the way who were in this house. Here's what we're able to discern based on how the probable cause affidavit is laid out, what is stated, what is not stated based on the evidence that is listed there. We can correlate, okay, here's who they serve search warrants to. Here's who they subpoenaed, things like that. And subsequent to that, Kate had me on three or four times. And after that, she said, look, you got to do this. You got to do this on a more regular basis because you can cover a multitude of cases and really help educate people. And so that's what started my podcast on Patreon. And it was very important to me to be on a format where I wasn't just once a week. I wanted to be able to jump on at a moment's notice whenever there was a big case breaking and be able to educate people, be able to help people understand things. And Patreon gave me that flexibility, but also I didn't wanna be locked into once one time a week. I wanted to be able, if I need to be on five days a week, I gotta be on five days a week. And it just worked out well. And as it turned out, I started mid-January. We have had a blockbuster a few months of huge true crime news in the last few months, not only with Idaho 4 case, but with Alec Murdoch, now with Lori Vallow-Daybell just having a verdict on Friday. So there's been so much, and there's so much interest in understanding how law enforcement works these investigations, how they move through the court system. And then there's a lot of interest in, really, there are people who are sensationalists and then there are people who are so pro-advocate and so want to advocate for these victims and want to see justice for these victims that it's really a dichotomy that I think is quite fascinating right now.
1: I would agree. I would agree, 100%. Yeah. It's zealous on both sides almost.
0: <laughs> yes, very much.
1: One of the things that I always am just really perplexed with in my observation in true crime coming from i would say just as much experience on the other side of things that you have right because exactly. i've lived with this i dealt with this i took down a murderer you know it just happened to be my mother was the victim and my father was the perpetrator and i i i have a a really there's this side where people are so quick to then go after the victims. And there's almost this messiatic adoration of the perpetrators. And I think that's just so dangerous. And so just, and I always argue too, is everybody then there's also the flip side of people that wanna burn these people at the stake. And like you were saying, going on these forums, they're doxing people, which Mm -hmm. is horrific to Mm -hmm. do. And because they think they know, not there, there was a, there was a girl that was quoted in the Vanity Fair article saying that they claim with her 1300 followers that th- they solved the Gaddy B. Petito case that the internet sleuths did <laughs> and that, that they should be allowed to have these, all these files on Brian Coburg so they can then solve this case as well with the Idaho four. What do you, how do you even, how do you even communicate with people like that? To make them understand that they're absolutely delusional.
0: Well, I think for some people, true crime is entertainment to them. You know, that's what it is. They don't see it as, okay, whoever called in the van in the Gabby Petito case, they were doing their public service. They weren't trying to investigate in totality the whole case. They had a minuscule nugget of crucial information, which they contributed that is very different than having the background, like even myself as an FBI agent, would I be, am I trained and could I adequately work the Idaho Four case? Yes. are there better agents to work certain aspects of that case than myself? Absolutely. You don't want me, I'm not a cast person. I don't have cellular analysis survey team experience to give you all the complexities of, okay, what cell phone towers did this ping? And what was the strength of this cell phone ping? And what was the distance? And there are better agents for that particular um, part of the investigation.
1: There's a lot of nuance involved.
0: Correct. Correct. Is my experience better at interviewing the victims or the family members or doing neighborhood canvases. I was an evidence response team member in the FBI. As I mentioned, I was at the crime scene of the Pentagon for 16 days. I would have been better forensically processing the crime scene, collecting the evidence, that sort of thing. So just because you may have experience in one aspect of law enforcement, or even as an agent, you're not necessarily the whole thing. No one uh, a case that, of this magnitude or any magnitude, quite frankly, it's very hard for one person to work it in totality. You need a team of investigators. You need your laboratory professionals. You need your surveillance teams at times. There's a lot of
1: aspects to it. And then with these sleuths, these internet sleuths, do you think that law enforcement feels that they aid their investigations or that they are detrimental?
0: I think they do both. I think they can do both. I think there is, I've seen, especially on Reddit, I've seen some very sophisticated conversations on there about particularly the cellular analysis and, okay, how many cell towers are there in, in Moscow? And what towers would they be able to ping on and that sort of thing. And then what areas of the topography are blocked and don't have it? And was that used by an individual who that was Brian's specialty is that he wanted to, according to what he told when he applied for a, a job at a local police station is he wanted to help rural departments with their cellular analysis and law enforcement. So did he particularly pick an area where there was lack of coverage? Because thats I thought it was a very intellectual conversation. So things like that could benefit people who understand that kind of technology. Certainly there in the initial days of that case, there was a lot of discussion about the food truck cameras and people who uh-huh. understood, hey, this video's out there, law enforcement, go get it. This could help you. That was interesting, I thought. All the Venmo, you can see when people make Venmo transactions, people were looking into that, forwarding that to law enforcement. I thought that could be very helpful. But then on the other hand, yeah, you've got all the indictments that were in there on the ex-boyfriends, on the neighbors, on the hoodie guys at the food trucks. All of that can be, that can distract law enforcement. Once once it was said, hey, these people have, have alibis, they're cleared, we're not looking at them. People, some of these internet sleuths didn't want to let that go. And then yeah. that becomes a distraction.
1: Because then do you think that law enforcement feels that they have a responsibility to also protect those people who are in fact, innocent of of committing a crime from being doxxed and from being assaulted or stalked or, because it's, it was a frenzy. Potentially.
0: Yes. And we saw the one case where that one professor, she was basically named, I believe it was on TikTok as this is the person that, that was participated in this. And she went to law enforcement and she, serve to cease and desist against this individual, and that person would not stop. You have to remember these people who come out with these very intense assertions against people and are doxing. Look, defamation and libel and slander are real, and you can be civilly sued. You better be careful because it can result in litigation and potentially prosecution. You saw the Moscow PD put out a warning like, look, you have got to stop this, everyone, because it does distract. But it also, they have an obligation when people are being slandered and libeled to pursue it.
1: Yeah. And they don't have unlimited resources to do that.
0: Correct. Correct. (laughs) And they are already taxed. The one benefit I would, or one, I guess, compliment I would give the Moscow PD right off the bat is they recognize, look, we don't have a lot of murders here. First of all, we haven't had a homicide in a number of years, but certainly one this complex where you have four victims and have to do four victimologies. You've got a fluid neighborhood of, of transients with, and by transients, college students who are coming and going. They're going home for Thanksgiving break. We've got a (laughs) huge, yes, yes. You have people coming and going. You had a football game that day. You had people from another university coming to town for that football game. You've got all these students who come and go from these college houses. You've got a very sophisticated crime scene with all, quite frankly, the very gruesomeness of that crime scene and all the forensics that that would involve. You've got multiple victims. You've got multiple people coming and going from that house. There's a lot of complexities to it. And so I really credit them for reaching out so quickly to state and federal partners and getting assistance in. And here's the thing people forget is that crime doesn't stop just because they've got this monumental case. There are still other crimes that they get called on 24 seven, they have to do their regular patrols, just like everything else. And so they needed the additional manpower. And I really credit their chief for recognizing that off the bat that, Hey, we need additional resources brought in ex- expeditiously here.
1: And yeah, kudos to them. Absolutely. Like putting the ego aside, being like, this is, we're going to need some help. I think that something that a lot of people lose sight of when they become just obsessed with cases like this is why are they doing more why aren't they doing this why didn't they do that they can run all this dna they can run all this analyzation they control they don't understand that a the amount of money time manpower resources etc that these things and some not every police department has a dna facility in them they've got to send it I think there's only, and I don't know, but I believe there's what, there's three recognized pro- DNA processing centers, at least by the feds, in this country, right? It wasn't like one in Colorado, one, in like, you know, wherever. Am I correct, or?
0: I don't want to quote on that,
1: because I, I haven't Oh no, definitely. that there's, but, but there's not this, but the, you're right. kids, there's it's, no it's not a 23andMe. Right you just send correct. it off, and it's like, here, I'll be back and over the internet. <laughs>
0: Correct, correct. No, I think one of my frustrations,
1: and certainly when I was
0: on the chat rooms in the initial few weeks of that case, I would, and given my background as a journalist, I would get so frustrated watching these news anchors say, it's been two and a half weeks. Is the case cold? And I'm like, is the case cold? <laughs> They're still doing neighborhood canvases. They're still collecting videotape. They're just getting forensics sent out to the labs, even with emergency subpoenas and emergency search warrants, they don't have all their data back yet from all the phone companies, financial companies, all the social media accounts. There was a wealth of investigation going on. And these media anchors and online sleuths were saying, oh, it's it's cold. They haven't made an arrest yet. And I'm like, they're not anywhere near cold. They don't even have everything back yet. They don't even know what they have yet. There's so much information. So it wasn't that they had a lack of information. It was that they had so much information, so much forensics, so much digital and cellular evidence, so many interviews from so many, all the friends, all the families, all the sorority members, fraternity members, the neighborhood, the employers, um, all of that had to come in. And it was a lot to do and hampered or impeded, if you will, by the fact that it was the Thanksgiving break. And so not everybody was local. I think people need to understand the complexities and that it's not like CSI. It's not like law and order. It's not necessarily going to be a quick 48-hour turnaround in arrest. Now, sometimes it is. But in this case, given the complexity and given the fact that this wasn't from all we know so far, Brian wasn't in their inner circle of any one victim. Apparently, there was a connection to at least one victim, but it appears to be very non-direct,
1: shall we say. Yes. Yeah, it's just, it's fascinating and it's tragic all at once. Very tragic.
0: Because when you see, first of all, you've got four victims who are in the prime of their lives, okay? They are studying to go out into the world and do their thing. And me mean, we just had commencement ceremonies this past weekend. Yeah, Maddie and Kaylee were given posthumous degrees. They were set. Kaylee had her job lined up. I believe it was in Texas. She was set to go out into the world. And Maddie was right along with her. She was going to graduate here in May, too. And then, of course, Xana and Ethan were undergraduates. They were halfway through. They were, by all appearances, very well liked. I haven't heard anyone say anything against Ethan Chapin about anything. He just sounds like such a lovely young man. They've set up that Tulip um, fundraiser in his memory and just these four young lives just cut short. It's just so devastating that they were just robbed and so brutally murdered. And then you have their families who have, some of those families have other children on that campus or nearby campuses. You think about how traumatic that is, that, okay, what do we do? Do we send our other kids back there are we, are they safe? You think about the trauma of those roommates, people. And that's another thing that's come yeah. out. People don't understand that people respond differently to trauma. Yes. And that yes. is all yes. another conversation. And
1: that's what I, and that's what I talk about so much on this program is the, they excoriate people, even myself. I just gave an interview and everybody said, oh, that guy's full of it. He doesn't, he's not crying enough or he's not this, nobody could talk about what he's been through. Oh, really? Guess what I am? <laughs> no, I'm right. not lying. I'm not lying. That's why I'm in the courtroom. This isn't a made-up story. It's uh, it, and they're so quick to excoriate this. What was it? The the not the roommate. Dylan it was in the house who mm-hmm. heard something and heard screaming or whatever. And they're you should have known. You should have called them. It's everybody's. Everybody's messed up. Everybody's partying. I went to college, I know what it's like. You did too. I don't know if you partied, but right. it gets crazy in those houses. You're not going to call you're not going to call the police every time. You're not going to be that person that calls the cops yet again on the partying roommates and be that uncool person. <laughs> you didn't mean- one of the
0: things cuz I covered this with Kate Casey, specifically the trauma portion related to the, to Dylan the roommate. And all these people are just just tearing her apart without knowing all the facts because we are limited. What we know is limited to what is in the probable cause affidavit at this point. But here's what people have not, uh, or a lot of people don't seem to remember. Even if she was partying and even if she had consumed whatever that night, she had enough wherewithal and enough. She was cognizant enough to say hey something's going on here and so she she opens the door the first time hey guys what's going on let's you know it's 4 4 in the morning let's quiet it down but then she's alert enough and cognizant enough she opens the door again when she hears noises and crying and checking peeking out what's going on notice she didn't walk right out and say hey what's going on here she had enough concern to do it surreptitiously, like peek out, what's going on? And then she was alert enough a third time to look out again. And that's when she saw the masked intruder with the bushy eyebrows. And I think people don't understand that some people, they fight, some people flee, some people capitulate, some people fawn. There's all sorts of different trauma responses According to her testimony to law enforcement, she said she was in frozen shock phase. She froze. She froze once she saw that figure. And if you look carefully at the wording in the probable cause affidavit, it says she was originally in her second floor bedroom. That tells me the fact that the word originally was in there. She eventually moved to another part of the house. And to me, that indicates she moved out of fear. She was terrified. She didn't know if that perpetrator had left. She didn't know if he was alone. She didn't know if he was coming back. And you have to imagine that she was trying to call her roommates or text her roommates and not getting a response. And did they hear? What did she hear? A lot of that has been abbreviated and not specified in the probable cause affidavit. And I have to imagine that she reached out to Bethany on the first floor and said, What are you hearing? Do you hear anything? What do you know? What, what's going on? Can you get a hold of them? They won't answer me. I can't get a hold of anybody up on the third floor. Did all those conversations take place? Because it's alluded to that law enforcement got the forensics from both Dylan and Bethany's phone. I think they wanted to see what did these girls say and what did they try to do so we can put this together in a timeline. I think those girls were probably terrified. They don't know what was going on. Of course on. they are. Of course they yeah. are.
1: It's so, so easy for everyone to sit there and say, oh, I would have done this. You've never been in that position. That's what makes me... That's well, what-
0: and yeah. Not only traumatized in the moment, but then traumatized once they learned what happened and then traumatized by all this online criticism. Yep. And then they have to go testify. And look what just yep. happened a few weeks ago with Bethany how the defense subpoenaed her. Can you imagine how traumatizing that was for her? It's traumatizing enough to have to testify, but certainly if she does have to testify, she wants to do it for the prosecution. She doesn't want to be called by the person who has been arrested for the alleged murders of her four four college friends. Just terrible. It makes me so angry the way these surviving roommates are attacked. I just think it's so unfair when we don't we don't know what their mindset is. We don't know their prior history with trauma. We don't know if they've
1: been victims previously. Their kids kid And
0: they're, yeah. Have,
1: okay. And they could have, yeah, go ahead. And they could have childhood trauma that we don't know.
0: That's right. They could have prior histories. And we need to remember that both of these roommates, they have grown up their entire lives with school shootings, their entire educational history has been with active shooter drills and hide in place and don't make any noise and play dead. That's what they've been trained. We can't undo the toothpaste is out of the tube there. We can't tell these two young women who have been trained their entire lives with, Hey, here's what you do when there is a potential killer near you to just undo that training. They've been taught as have all students in the past 20 years to shelter in place, to be quiet, to lock doors, to not speak, to play dead. And now all these online people are saying, Oh no, don't do that. You should call 911. I think that's very unfair. I just think that's so really. unfair.
1: Completely. And that's a great point that they have been raised with that. I, I wasn't raised with that. Like I was, I, I think the la- the first mass school shooting was right after I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. So I never grew up with that. Tornado drills. <laughs> okay. But not something like that. And Yeah, that's a great point that these, that, yeah, stay put. Don't tr- hide. Protect yourself.
0: And think about it. They're 20 years old. So they were born, what, 2002, 2003? Yeah. That's after
1: Columbine. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, when was Columbine? Maybe I wasn't. 1999. School. Oh, no, yeah, that was after I graduated. I just, it's the victim blaming is just, it's like they're looking for someone. And then we have the flip side of Brian Koberger's sisters being doxxed online and found out that they worked in the mental health field and them losing their jobs and his family. And this is someone who now, of course, they want to vilify the family. And I remember I was watching something on a, a news nation or whatever. And I hadn't even talked about this case. Cause everybody was talking about, it. I, was like, I don't normally do that, but now I'm very interested in it, but they were saying, oh, Brian Koberger's father had money problems back. He filed for bankruptcy in 2011. And that's just a like, who cares that does not make, what does that have to do with anything that his son did on his own accord and the way they come after these families of the perpetrators. Who are children? I
0: saw horrible things online yesterday for Mother's Day about Brian's mother, and I just thought it was just vile, just vile. What mother, no mother would ever wish this, want this, create this intentionally? No, I'm sure. And his mother, had been very public in her opinions on the school shootings down in Evaldi, Texas, about this is an atrocity, all these people being killed by guns. She was very vocal about that. She had, by all accounts, had worked in the educational system, was well liked. She wouldn't want this. I think that's just terrible for people to say that about her. And those sisters, they're their own people they are allowed to have their lives they shouldn't be fired because of actions their brother did or did not do okay he's not even proven guilty it hasn't he's even been proven suspect.
1: guilty he's in custody you know what i mean it's that's what's that's what really makes me angry is that everybody is just now we're going to go after them because we want justice so now we're going to go and destroy these people's lives this is what motivated me to create my film and get into this whole world is because People do not understand the ancillary victims that come out of these situations, the impacts on communities, families, the friends, the best friends, the the, the roommates. Nobody looks at that. They're just angry and they just want. and, and by the way, it has absolutely nothing to do with them. <laughs> the people who are coming after, they're not affected. They're, their brother wasn't accused of this. Their brother and sister weren't murdered. They were the ones who were, they're just taking up the cause for whatever reason. And now they're going after innocent people. How many innocent people need to be affected in the wake of this violent crime?
0: Yes. And I would even extend it all the way up to the jurors. You look at just what this verdict in the Lori Vallow case last week, those jurors are never going to be able to unsee what they had to see there are so many victims that are even just people who are somehow trans just are witnesses that just by no, you know, that have to testify. The school district officials who had to give Tammy Daybell's email accounts that had vital evidence in it, you know, things like that. I think about the DoorDash driver in this Idaho 4 case. That DoorDash driver was there within minutes of the perpetrator showing up for the murder. Could have crossed paths, almost. So you think about how all these people are traumatized and how their lives are never really gonna be the same. And nobody knows unless you're in their shoes. You know, you really don't know. And I feel bad for the neighbors. All these sites of some of these horrible crimes, John JonBenet Ramsey, the Idaho Four, um, they become like looky-loo, yeah, places where people drive by and they're sightseeing. And I, I know someone who was at Yosemite last week and said, "Oh, I went to room five oh nine because that's where the killing happened with Carrie Stainer. And I'm like, "Really, really? You know?" So it's
1: it, they again.
0: Did... It's the entertainment of it
1: for people. Two thousand and seven i was partying one night with this producer and we were having a few drinks and so what's your story you know and i was like well and i told him and he just froze and he goes oh my god i did a film in erie pennsylvania three months ago and the first thing on the trip from the airport to my hotel they said we're going to swing by this house where this big murder occurred and the woman was found in the basement here i'm going to take you by this like a landmark and he goes that, and was, that was your mother, mother. That was your that was the house where the, your mother was found. It was like, yep, that's me. I'm that kid. <sighs> he just he was blown away. He was, it was literally a, before they took us to the hotel, they wanted to show us this house. He's just thinking, This is so why are these people obsessed with this? This is horrific. And then he sits with the guy who he just did a project with three months later. And he was just, he looked like he'd seen a ghost when I was telling him the story. And he just it was blown away. They become tourist attractions.
0: Very much. So I was happy to hear on one hand, now here's another point. I was happy to hear the owner of the house in Idaho has donated it to the university to, and the university intends to have it demolished. However, I was like, Whoa, time out. Let's maybe not demolish that before trial because I do believe in some instances, jurors touring a crime scene can be helpful the prosecution. Now, of course, it backfired in the O.J. Simpson case. However, yeah. if you look at the recent Alec Murdoch trial,
1: yes, many
0: of the jurors came out and said, look, it really helped me to have some perspective here. Where, were, where was the dog shed in relation to the house? Where are these different various driveways that were pertinent to that crime? I do think because of that odd layout within that house and then the parking lot behind the wood line behind the house. I think that would be beneficial for jurors to be able to see, okay, where were the bedrooms and where is the belief path of the perpetrator and based on the movement throughout the house um, and how close were the other homes and, and things like that. I think it could really benefit the jury. So I'm hopeful. I was relieved to hear that the university does not plan to go forward with raising that house until they get the concurrence of both the prosecution and the defense. And originally it appeared that plans were in place to demolish the house before the end of this semester. Now notice we're not hearing anything about that. So someone must have objected either the prosecution or the defense. And quite frankly, I think until this case is adjudicated, as painful as it is, as a reminder to that community of what occurred there, until justice, until this is adjudicated, I don't want it demolished until then.
1: Yeah, I would concur. Absolutely. Because that could make or break a conviction.
0: Right. Now, is the home in erie has that been demolished or is oh, it still no, there
1: still there no that's what i'm saying this was 2008 that this guy is telling me this story that was 18 years after the murder
0: <laughs> wow
1: and apparently and it's, it's, still, nice there today. Yeah, it's still, still there today yeah still there and apparently it's as far as i knew a couple of years ago it was still there it's a very nice house in a very nice location on the lake it's a it's probably worth it
0: Lake Erie, yeah, probably worth a couple
1: million. I'm sure now, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. And it's, a, yeah, very. It's very unfortunate. It's, yeah, it, it's a necessary evil to be able to have those. Those and very crucial to be able to walk a jury through that. And I'm um, sorry, it just threw me for a loop because I literally was just thinking, like, wow, that is uh-huh. really still there. It really. <laughs> It mm-hmm. kind of hit me when I was saying it. And I, I haven't thought about that in a really long time either. But that is, That house is still there and there are people living in there. Oh, it's it's wild, right? Mm-hmm.
0: It is. And you too, I don't know if you've reconnected with your sister or not. But I think, no. I think, I wish there was more studies on know, okay, you have siblings who both experienced trauma, different genders, different ages, adopted by different families. What was their trauma response afterwards? And I think more studies would be interesting, especially children, especially children. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And is there anything that can be learned that could be beneficial? I think it's very, very, you know, in order to help, you got to study it. And I think, don't know enough people study it enough.
1: Yeah. I, I would completely agree with that. That is absolutely. that, And you have a lot of insight into people who are willing to talk about it. I'm very vocal about my experiences because that's that's how I deal with my trauma. That's my response. I've been vocal since I was 11 years old. That's just how it is. But for a time, Mm -hmm. I wasn't, but that wasn't because that was just because I was like also behind the scenes making something about that trauma. But I think that, that there's so much to draw out of children's experiences and their insight. I think that with my own personal experience, not to make this about me, but is that you should listen to kids. Like kids are way more observant than you might think they are. Mm -hmm. Something that I think I would love your take on is there's this recent case of, what is her name? Corey, Corey, whatever.
0: Yes, Uh, Richens. uh,
1: Yes. Corey Richens.
0: Yes. that you're talking about the author of the children's great
1: book. And you have these cases like, Lori Vallow, right? There's mm-hmm. now this Corey Richens case. Even the Letitia Stouck and mm-hmm. maybe you could even say to a certain extent, Murdoch or Murdoch. I find it very disturbing because I find a common thread in those particular cases and my father, because my father's a psychopath, right? And everything mm-hmm. is planned and calculated. They're they don't, they're not unhinged people. But with a psychopath, everything is transactional. And mm-hmm. the absolute wanton, callous, careless way in which they think that people are just expendable to them. Or inconven- pawns. Their Their inconvenience. Lori Vallow, in my opinion, was inconvenienced by her children because mm-hmm. of her pursuit of not only a new life with a new man, But also this divine obsession, this messiatic syndrome that she was suffering from, that Mm. that she was going to be the new queen next to the whatever, of hundred, the new Jerusalem, these delusions. My father is going to move into this house with this much younger girlfriend who's pregnant with his child and her family and start a new life. But it wasn't good enough for him because he wanted his wife underneath his feet. Because how dare she divorce him? He could have started off anew. Murdoch, the way that he just, the way that his case looked out, Letitia Stouck, this entitlement or this just complete disregard, I find it very disturbing because it seems, and maybe I'm just, this is my, and then now this Curry Richens is going to turn that into something that she profits from and writes this book and under the guise of, I'm doing something for my children. Well, you've done the worst possible thing for your children, and how the—it's almost like a sense of entitlement, a crime of entitlement. And I feel well, like you're on the rise. I think the thing with a lot of these
0: individuals, you look at the narcissism, yes, and then you look at compounded with the narcissism, it's the lack of empathy. And you use the word transactional. And that is exactly what they do. They have no empathy. Everything's a transaction. People are just pawns to be used for their personal benefit and, um, or to be getting rid of for their benefit. Yes. And so I think when you look at that, it does bear the question do we just understand this better now? And we're just more aware that psychopaths are amongst us. Psychopaths can be quite charming. Your dad my was able was. to go out and get another woman. and My,
1: my this- father was. Lori Vallow clearly was. You watch her thing. I heard Alec Murdoch was a very charismatic trial attorney. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? Obviously, this this uh, Corey Richards is on... Is on television engaging. She's a good-looking woman. She's talking this. She's on a morning show on this and putting herself out there. And granted, she's innocent until proven guilty, but uh, certainly
0: right. that this is what is alleged is that yes. look, she was looking to make that she was opportunistic. She yes. was looking to gain off this crime. Very similar to Alec Murdoch. Look at how all the financial crimes in that case, yes. and that the financial crimes are fascinating in that case. Specifically with Gloria Satterfield and you know how he was trying to, he stole not only from the victims, Gloria Satterfield, and from the boat crash, the Mallory Beach family, but then other people. I think there was a UPS driver who had yes. been killed and another para- person who had become a paraplegic. He just had no empathy for these people none yeah so is it so back to your question is it just we're more aware of it or are there more of them i don't know i don't know the answer to that
1: perhaps it's a little bit of both
0: perhaps i'd be (laughs) willing to i'd say yes i think that's a fair assessment certainly i think there's all this interest in true crime but again to some people it's entertainment and people people profit off victims they have their podcasts and i've reached out to other podcasts to say hey maybe we could do a crossover or if you ever 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 have any questions i've got a law enforcement background and i don't even get a response to to, to, it right they don't care they've got their million instagram followers they don't need an actual FBI agent with experience
1: to talk to. I love to have you yeah. on this program a lot. Thank They're you. <laughs> You're very intelligent because there's so much stuff I would love to talk to you about, especially about financial crime because I'm... Joe Berlinger, I was just in a documentary with him on Vice a couple of weeks and as Tara was, I think we, we told you about that the other day, but uh, he, did a, he did the Madoff four-part series, which I thought mm-hmm. was brilliantly and well done. But I was... I'm... I mean, you talk about a sociopath.
0: There, right there. Absolutely.
1: And what I find is the most fascinating in his case is the fact that when he was finally caught, how much he just talked and shared about that world. Now, Of course, a lot of it is to reframe his own narrative. Absolutely. (laughs) But but some of the things that he said really hit home. And it's very interesting. And it's fascinating when I think about how people people get a, think that they can get away with crimes like this, think that they can be smarter than law enforcement, think that like not everybody has a ring camera these days, or a cell phone, mm-hmm. or doesn't, or, or
0: genetic genealogy, or <laughs> geofencing warrants, and I, it's it's tough now. Quite frankly, it's tough to commit the perfect crime right now with all the cameras everywhere and all the technology and all the DNA advancements.
1: It's it also very it's also very easy for people to be stalked, tracked. And I was oblivious to this, but when I was talking to Tara and they, they talked about it in Dirty John that John Meehan was buying trackers off of Amazon and installing software in their phone
0: mm-hmm. that they
1: didn't even know it was an app that was he was able to go on a computer and track them everywhere. And I'm like, wait, you can get these things on Amazon. They're like, oh yeah. And and I look it up and it's like $40. It's nothing. I'm thinking to myself, do I need to like check? I always think about like when the cars are going into like the compounds of some wealthy shake in an oil country or where you're going into like the the FBI base at Quantico and they've got the mirrors and the dogs and the whole thing. Do you you (laughs) need that for your house to to make sure sure somebody has to come in and slide that and that's, the car.
0: that's a very good that's a very good point there are people who have found they'll take their car in for an oil change and the mechan- mechanics will look up and say hey do you know you got a tracker attached to your car and people have no idea and it could be any number of reasons that someone does that but certainly it happens it's more commonplace than people realize
1: it's a little terrifying it's a little terrifying. How do you think the people protect themselves these days? Should people live in should people live in fear? I'm not somebody that lives in fear, but do you think that with all this sensationalization that people, as in your experience, should be more afraid of what's going on in this world?
0: Oh, that's, now that's the million dollar question. I think you don't want to see a terrorist behind every tree. That's we used to say that when I worked on a terrorism squad look. You gotta really, you don't wanna be Paranoid. But at the same time, you should take general precautions, especially with your finances, with um, your personal identifying information. It's, I think, it doesn't hurt to get a ring doorbell, it doesn't hurt to have motion sensory lights outside your residence basic small things like that you don't need a $2000 a month security system a simple ring camera or blink camera could certainly help you really educate yourself on financial scams all these phishing scams and all these identity theft scams protect your identity information be careful of online dating scams that's one of the number one things if you go to a if you go to a bitcoin machine in any town across this country, and you sit and watch that Bitcoin machine for about half an hour, 45 minutes, do you know what you're going to see? You're going to see a lot of elderly women going up to that machine and depositing money to buy Bitcoin that they're forwarding to someone that they think is their new boyfriend who claims he lives in Colorado or in Florida. Guess what? He doesn't. He's overseas and he's taking your retirement account. And believe me, you're going to see one elderly woman after another, and it is rampant right now because it used to be um, through those letters. Oh, I want I want to come visit you, but yes. I lost my wallet. Can you send me money? Now it's all being done through cryptocurrencies. Yes. So if you have any elderly relatives that are being asked to give crypto, buy crypto or buy Bitcoin, stop. Yeah. <laughs> you know that's it's the latest scam, but it's hard to educate. It's hard to educate people because some people are afraid of computers. Some people have computers, but don't understand them. Some people are like, no, it says it's on a check. It's on, I got an email. It's, they don't get how things are so easily manipulated these days
1: i watched a video from a guy and i can't remember his name he has a huge youtube following well deserved i think he's like second to mr beast like 65 million people or something but he was got famous for he was like an engineer he worked at jpl here in pasadena and quit and did his youtube videos but he did the scam boxes with the tracking and the cell phones and everything to bust these scammers and he was talking about that he ended up leading law enforcement working with the fbi for two years to track these because what he thought was people stealing packages out of your cars went way deeper to these people committing financial crimes against the elderly in retirements where they would be online with them. And they're like, no, I'm looking at your bank account, check your website and they send them and they have a fake bank of America account showing how they have this money in their account and they believe it. So they wire them more money. It's unbelievable. And then it's this huge daisy chain of people here in the States that leads back to these call centers in India and, uh, they mm-hmm. scam. had been going on for thirty years or something. It started back in the telephone days and right. Western Union days, and it's absolutely just mind-boggling. But something that you said, get a ring camera, get in this. But that's easy for people that can afford that. But for the mom of four that lives on a med- fixed a budget, age, fixed budget, who is being stalked by an ex-boyfriend or a perpetrator. Or, you know, somebody that they met online dating, for example, or they're getting threats, what do they do?
0: That's the thing. Finances do play a role in it. Absolutely. If you can budget for it, seriously, yeah. if for your family safety. If you can't afford one, find out if your neighbors have one. Set up a neighborhood canvas. I know in my neighborhood, we have a block alert. We even have a code word. Hey, if I ever call you and use this term, that means I'm in danger. There's someone in my house, that kind of thing. Those are simple little things you can do that can help you in case you do come home one day from picking up your kids at school and you walk in and there's an intruder in your home, or there's someone there that shouldn't be there or that you're in danger. I think there are small things where, you know, or even Have a a check-in system where if you don't respond within so long, someone comes and checks on you or calls your neighbor, or you have a plan in place, or if you do need to flee, where are you going to go? Do you have your own bank account? If you are in a situation where you're potentially in a volatile interpersonal relationship, make sure you have your own money and your own funds, your own bank account, things like that. Think ahead.
1: Yeah. Easier said than done. It's a tough world. Jody, thank you so much for joining the program. Thank I you, Collier.
0: I want to have oh, you. Oh, I'd love to. Thank You're,
1: you. Okay, so really fast, where can they what is your podcast? Where can they find your podcast? What, what, give us all the socials. Do your thing.
0: Yes. I am on patreon.com. My podcast is called Caught in My Web. It's a true crime podcast. And then of course you can find me on Twitter at jodine weber instagram is at weber jodine and then my website is jodineweber.com
1: we will have links to all of jody's socials and website and all of her links in the show notes of today's episode what a really great conversation i'm so glad that i met her Uh, i want to say thank you to my guest jodine weber i will put links and all of her links in the show notes of today's episode. So you guys can check her out and check out her podcast, Caught in My Web, only available on Patreon. Until next time, Mover Nation, I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Trauma. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. For exclusive content around this podcast, please consider supporting me via Patreon by going to collierlandry.com forward slash support. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and please leave us a five-star review. If you want to see video episodes of this podcast, please check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash collierlandry. You can find links to additional resources in the show notes of today's episode. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio. Copyright Collier Landry.